Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 203 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Vivi Ganeshanathan. She is the author of the novels Brotherless Nights, which is a New York Times editor's choice. And I'm going to stop right here and kind of break the fourth wall. Those of you listening, why are you why have you not bought the book yet? Why have you not bought Brotherless Nights? I'm going to stop about eight times throughout the podcast. It is so good. It's one of the most memorable books I've ever read. Buy this book. Also wrote Love Marriage, which was long listed for the Women's Prize and named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post. Her work has appeared in Granta, the New York Times, and the Best American Non-Required Reading, among other publications. A former vice president of the South Asian Journalists Association, she's also served on the board of the Asian American Writers Workshop and is presently a member of the boards of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies and the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. The National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, Yado, McDowell, and the American Academy in Berlin have awarded her fellowships. She served as visiting faculty at the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan and at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and now teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota, where she is a McKnight Presidential Fellow and Associate Professor of English. She also co-hosts the fiction nonfiction podcast on Literary Hub, which is about the intersection of literature and the news. Good evening. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So, so excited to talk to you. It's an honor having a fellow podcaster on. It's an honor having somebody who has written, you know, these two just great books. Love Marriage was like, what, 2007, 2008? It was 2008. Okay. So I got to figure you made some of those like best, like under 30 faces to watch, that kind of thing. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, um, those... It's okay. It's a, it's a dim memory. Well, I was just going to say, it's like one of those writing these classics, writing these great books and, you know, at such a young age. And then we come out with, uh, of course, Brotherless Night, which we'll get into later. I'm just, you know, amazed at all the different places you work, how you really seem to really use your writing for, for good and, you know, working with the prisons, the prison writing workshop and such. Do you have time to sleep or, or what? Um, that's funny. I, as a younger person, um, I shouldn't say that. I'm like a... I actually have an insomnia issue, but it has come oh, to my wow. attention recently that I <laughs> I should sleep more. Um, so I think, you know, like like a lot of writers, uh, I'm learning how to manage. I'm constantly learning how to manage my time better um, with the help of a lot of others. So um, but yeah, I'm, I've been lucky to work with a lot of great people who are very organized and someday I will be, too. <laughs> are you from the Midwest? You're from the East Coast? I'm not sure where you grew up. I grew up in Maryland. OK. Is, is there a Maryland accent? <laughs> there is actually um i guess i guess it's a mid-atlantic accent at this point western maryland i think has its own sound oh excuse me but yeah i don't know i guess i have a mid-atlantic accent <laughs> so you know like i said but yeah a lot of a lot of the work has been done in the midwest but 
I'd love to go back to, you know, to growing up. I got to think, but maybe I'm wrong. I got to think you were the, the one at the library all the time, um, a big reader, but, but maybe not. I wonder about your relationship with the written word. I also wonder, I mean, did you, did you speak Tamil growing up? Did you speak a different language? Like how did monolingualism or bio, bilingualism work in your household? Um, that's a great question. I, my parents, um, do speak Tamil. Um, I speak Tamil as well, but I'm what most language instructors would call a heritage learner. So, um, anecdotally, it's my observation that Tamil kids whose parents migrated to non-English speaking countries tend to be better Tamil speakers because Uh, they have to translate for their parents. And I didn't Mm -hmm. do that. Um, either that or if there's like sort of a critical mass of folks like there are a lot of people in Toronto and London who are excellent speakers so I'm a little more um my knowledge is probably a little patchier than that and I've Mm -hmm. studied formally a little bit but as a kid I guess largely what I did was learn the imperative by being told what to do and so I can actually can always conjugate (laughs) the imperative flawlessly yeah yep yep um yeah so my parents did regularly speak Tamil at home and I can understand but I'm, yeah, more receptive than expressive. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. More receptive than expressive. Wow. I don't remember if it was an interview with you. I don't remember if it was a, a blur, but I think you were maybe recanting that someone had give, paid you a big compliment saying that your your English read as Tamil, something to that effect. That I've familiar? been, yeah, I've been pretty pleased that a couple of the reviews of Brotherless Night have noted that it's a very Tamil novel despite the fact that it's written in English, that the English mimics um, certain qualities of Tamil, certain cadences, Mm -hmm. um, probably grammatical structures Mm -hmm. that exist in Tamil. Um, Is there something about the language that you feel like you could, you you could, like you could trace in your writing, you know, is it it extremely poetic? Is it, is it brief? Is it, I don't know. Is there something about the language you think? That's interesting. I, I actually think a lot of it is the grammar um, I don't know that Tamil people are known for their brevity. Okay. Um, <laughs> that maybe would be to our benefit if we were, but I guess I'm given to declarative sentences and I often will attach two verbs together in English in a way that actually mimics a specific grammatical structure. Okay. Um, like maybe a good example in English would be like, go and get it as opposed to just get it. Uh... Um, and Thummel has auxiliary verbs in that way. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's one example. But then I think I also, like there's certain colloquialisms that I have heard people translate into English. Mm. And so it's easy to represent them in English and to know what they mean in Thummel. And I think anyone who has heard that kind of speech in both will recognize that if someone says, um, like right at the end of a sentence in English, um, but the book says that they're speaking in Tamil, it will denote a certain word or okay. a certain structure. Like, so I'm sort of, yeah, in a sense, I'm, I don't know how consciously I was doing it, doing this, but there is like a, with some dialogue, like an aspect of kind of subtitling mm, that was maybe okay. going on. Yeah. I, I think, I feel like that's where it at. And that's where it's at. And so these, so many languages, just the idioms, right? The idioms are so fun. Like, you know, to translate them literally into English, it's like, you know, it shows you why you can't translate literally into English. It doesn't quite make sense in English, but it does in, you know, in Hindi or Spanish or Japanese or, or whatever it happens to be. You know, in Spanish, they'll say, for example, like we say in English, what it costs an arm and a leg. In Spanish, it's like it costs an eye from the face. Oh, that's so good. Makes as much sense as costs an arm and a leg, right? I mean, but yeah, an eye from yeah. the face. That's more like, so it's so visual. 
Well, sorry, with the million hats that you're wearing, I'm, I'm making into a linguist as well. Sorry, I'm, you know, I don't expect you to be an expert on the etymology and the history of Tamil, but I appreciate that. That's interesting to know. Because yeah, with that, that thing saying that, that your book reads like Tamil and English, I thought was interesting. So I had to ask you about that. Who were you reading? What were you reading growing up? Were you, you know, science fiction? Were you reading um, you know, philosophy? I don't know. Who were some of the read writers and what were some what was some of the writing that really pulled you in? Um, I read uh a lot across genres. I can't say I read any philosophy, but um I read a lot of writing in English from former British Commonwealth countries. So I read a lot of British literature, a lot of Canadian literature, mm -hmm. um, arguably more than a lot of other American kids, maybe because of having Commonwealth mm -hmm. educated parents and also having, you know, cousins and friends in Canada and England with whom I would trade and discuss books oh. or other Sri, Lank Sri Lankan origin kids in the United States who, with whom I would trade and discuss books. Um, Maybe the person I read the most with, the editor of Love Marriage, was actually a also a childhood friend of mine. Mm. Um, not just a childhood, but really a lifelong friend of mine. Um, cool. And sorry, say that again. I said, how cool is that? It was really amazing. Oh, okay. um, I think a lot of people were sort of like, you two are entering into a business relationship, and that is dangerous. And yeah. we were like, and we were kind of like, it's gonna be fine. Uh. Um, and and it and yeah, it um, it was was in was great. Um, and now that she is no longer my editor, it's still a, still one of the best friendships I have. Mm -hmm. uh, she and I read a lot of Anne of Green. We read a lot of Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. um, but we also just, yeah, just anything either one of us thought was interesting yeah. was passed back and forth. Um, and we would give each other books for birthdays. And All right. um, so she was a great person to read with. And probably... I do think like sometimes we're asked about our influences and our influences are more like, I don't know, they're like more childhood rooted than yeah, yeah. the thing that we read like, you know, last month even. So I think I'm deeply influenced by the 80s in general mm -hmm. and also by my imagination of the 80s in other places, notably mm -hmm. the setting of this book. Yeah. So I was also someone who as a kid like read a lot of or watched a lot of superhero movies and kind of 1980s action mm -hmm. films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about like the British Commonwealth. So pop quiz, how would you spell cent the word center? Ha. Um, as a child, I would have spelled it C-E-N-T-E-R. And also I am a code switcher. Um, and the second I got to a place that would have spelled it R-E, I would have swapped and I wrote um, all of Brotherless Night. I set my settings to British English. Yeah. And Flat by and line. large, yeah. And by and large, I like was able to do it. I mean, the copy editors caught some stuff that I did irregularly, but okay. but mostly I was able to stick to it. Wow. Oh man. Well, so yeah, I mean, like like you said, I mean, that's shoot the whole ethic of the podcast really is so much of the nostalgia of, of childhood and how much those books are so formative. But like as you got into high school, college, I mean, we're what put you on the path to being a writer? And I'm sure it wasn't a, maybe it was a one time thing, but like any Eureka moments where you're just like I want to do like she does with that double mean that, that double feeling of like, I could never do what she does, but you know, or he does, you know, like were there any works or, or again, writers who really made you say, I want to do this for a living. I want to do this for fun. Sure. <laughs> um, I think I was very lucky to have parents who encouraged me. Um, and even from the time that I was a pretty little kid, I said that that was what I wanted to do. And mm. they kind of honored that and took it seriously. Um, 
possibly that was made easier for them by the fact that I at some point decided I also wanted to be a lawyer and that I took that illusion, which I also bought into pretty far before I realized that meant I would have to go to law school and practice law. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think they thought there was like a more uh, traditionally lucrative way that I might make a living. Mm-hmm. But sort of, I would say like in general, they were extremely encouraging of the idea that I could be a writer. I remember that when I was in elementary school, Gregory Maguire, who would later write Wicked oh. and who then was just kind of a, who was who was writing very good books, but ones that weren't as well known, came to my elementary school and he might've been the first writer that I met. And I would, Whoa. I just loved his work. And I, I mean, I loved his work before Wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote some stuff that was kind of spec fic um, with teen protagonists or child protagonists. I relatively recently went and looked for, like it was an early book of his where I didn't remember the title and I think it's mm-hmm. out of print. And I I loved this book. Oh. Um, I read a lot of biography also as a kid and I did read sci-fi, which you mentioned earlier, sci-fi mm-hmm. and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say that that visit from Gregory Maguire to our school, I was like, wow, yeah. look, it's an actual writer. That's very cool. Yeah. And then I did also have a high school teacher who was, the advisor to the newspaper and the creative writing um, advisor and my regular English teacher. So I had her mm-hmm. one year, I had her for four out of my seven classes oh, <laughs> and she was also extraordinarily encouraging. And now that she's retired as a full-time writer herself. Um, yeah. So have you been able to send some copies of the books to her? And Yeah, I think um, she's been always like enormously supportive. Um, We're still connected on social media um, and she sometimes writes to me and vice versa. So it's always nice to hear from her and also nice to see what she publishes herself. Yeah. Um, Like a collection of short stories called Flight Path that I really enjoyed. I think she's had one book since then. Um, So yeah, she's a writer primarily, I think, of short fiction and publishes her stuff in journals. Nice. Um, so, so ooh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to walk this tightrope here. Skull and Bones? I knew you're Harvard. Is that Skull and Bones Yale or is, is Skull and Bones Harvard? Skull and Bones is Yale. Dang it. Sorry. Sorry. For t- no, it's fine. Race, rewind 30 minutes. So I get, then again, if you weren't in secret clubs, you wouldn't tell me, but were you in secret clubs at Harvard? Um, I think I'm like not a secret clubs kind of person. Okay. Um, I'm afraid that I do have some, I probably have some like, I don't know. It's easy for me to romanticize things like that. And that's like a tendency that I like to fight against because my progressive political leanings would tend in the other direction. So <laughs> I'm probably the kind of person who would watch the movie Skull and Bones starring uh-huh. starring Joshua Jackson, but um, I would not myself join Skull and Bones. Joshua Jackson from Dawson's Creek? Uh-huh. Oh my God. Wow. It's not a good movie. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for saving me the... Yeah. Well, so what you were saying basically sounds exactly like someone who actually was in a club would say. So appreciate that. Someone who <laughs> would deny it. Okay, I got you. So so you were cool. All right. Blink twice <laughs> now. You have this this great podcast that you do, uh, you know, fiction nonfiction. And I mean, am I saying it right? That the, like the kind of summing it up is like there's a book for that. When there was a Supreme Court madness with you know Clarence Thomas getting a million dollars and you know prize, you know, just an example. Like there's a book for that. Like political like hot butt hot button type of type of topics there's a book for that there's an article for that am i am i correct on that kind of how how do you i guess which informs which are you like i'm gonna we want to do this story let's see if there's news or vice versa um it has worked both ways yeah it's a podcast about the intersection of literature and the news and it is really the brainchild of my co-host whitney terrell who's also a fabulous novelist and journalist and who works at 
the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Mm. Um, and he was, yeah, he was also a journalist before he was a novelist. So that's kind of one of the things we had in common. And I don't know, I guess I tend to, we we come at it both ways. Sometimes it's like, there's someone we're really excited to talk to and what would they be great at talking about? And sometimes it's, I'm really mad about this thing and how can we get it on uh, the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, the assault on reproductive rights in Texas in particular. I think, you know, we had Elizabeth Wetmore uh, come on to talk about that. Or, you know, we had Jay Wexler on to talk about the Supreme Court. Um, you know, all sorts of wonderful reporters and um, also creative writers have been on the show yeah. to talk about kind of, yeah, what it's like to write about things that are topical, um, which I mean in the broadest sense. And it's been cool in part because, you know, I, as like a working writer was first really published and paid as a journalist and still have a lot of friends who are journalists and it's cool to get to talk to them about writing, um, yeah. which I'm not sure how often they get asked about what they think about writing. And it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I really enjoyed this. I think there's a recent one with Celeste Ng, you know, like the basic, I mean, I wish it were a, a rosier topic is basically like the GOP's war on children. <laughs> Pretty dark, but um, yeah, just awesome to hear her. You know, she's obviously one of the, one of the greats. Um, Whitney, is that his first name? Your yeah. Son? So he calls you the pessimist of the two, huh? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that's totally accurate, but we'll okay. let, we'll let him get away with it. <laughs> um, in your in your teaching, I wonder what's really resonating with your students these days or in these last couple of years. Like, who, what are some of the books or who are some of the writers who really you're just you know so excited to bring to the students? Sure, I think um, a lot of students for the past several years have been excited about Carmen Maria Machado. Mm. Um, and, you know, the different ways that Carmen plays with form, um, the humor, but, you know, yeah, the ability to twin that with darkness, um, mm. the engagement with tradition and subversion of tradition and myth, um, playing alongside realism, um, yeah, the, the like deafness and nimbleness with form, yeah. uh, they're just really, they're always excited about that. People love Yoon Lee um mm. as I do and you know she's got a new book coming out Wednesday's Child which I'm really looking forward to um yeah I mean her entire body of work always speaks to people whenever I teach a story of hers people respond strongly nice. to that um yeah I think it's I do feel like because that one of one of the things I can do as a teacher is to offer people my First, the it's it's particular fun for me as a teacher to kind of give my students bespoke reading recommendations. Yeah. So I'm always trying to get out of them. What are you reading? Why did you like it? And then I'm like, how can I hand you three books that you will also yeah. like, but wouldn't I like have that expected? three books, not just one, three books. Right. Oh, no, like I want to give them like yeah. a list. Load I want it to be like, um, yeah, I think it would have been really fun to be a librarian, mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. example. So. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are a few of the people that they have been really, really excited about. But there are so many more, of course. Yeah. The again, I'm forgetting where I read this or saw this, but 
you know, and I know, I know books are not, they don't come overnight. Even if you're like, oh, I, I started last week. Like you didn't start last week. You've been thinking about it for, you know, 20, you know, this idea of 20 years for Brotherless Night. I did start Brotherless Night more or less in January, 2004. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about some of the seeds for the book. And maybe that's, maybe those are kind of impossible to trace. There've been so many, but um, just kind of maybe where it started. Sure. It started with a little bit of research that I found in a book that I had bought in Sri Lanka. And I was on my way back from that trip and was kind of furiously reading and found this mention of a historical incident that I knew I couldn't cram into love marriage. There just was no spot where it would go. And the attention I wanted to pay to that incident exceeded what that other book could contain. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I wanted to, Ethan Kanan was teaching a novella class at the University of Iowa and I wanted to get into the class and I hadn't originally registered for it because I was like, I don't write novellas. I'm, I don't know how interested I am in that, but that's actually not the reason to take the class. The reason to take the class is that Ethan is teaching it. Um, and so at least I like came to my senses and was like, I don't care what it is. Ethan's teaching it and I should try to take it because I haven't studied with him yet. Um, and then it was, the class was full. So I was like, what can I do to get into the class? I can offer to go first. Oh, like first in workshop? Yeah. Oh, um, wow, wow. wow. So essentially that forced me to write a version of the story in the historical incident really, really fast. Mm. Um, I've always responded pretty well to deadlines. That's going to sound hilarious to a certain set of people now, but um, I responded well to short-term deadlines. And so I was able to um, write a very long short story, like hardly a novella, but enough to kind of merit. Yeah. Ethan let me in the class and the class discussed that piece and, was kind of like you should keep going with that um which was yeah mm. a really nice piece of encouragement is is that is that mostly in i i, I don't know i was gonna say if you could quantify like is is 50 percent of that story still in the book is none of it is all of it almost all of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, obviously i know you didn't work on it for 20 straight years you know all these you know stops and starts and in-betweens and this but but like the book is took takes an emotional toll on the reader i just wonder about the emotional impact i mean it's it's obviously based very heavily on real life events, Sri Lanka and the flashbacks and just like nostalgia and all that. Like, I was wondering about the emotional impact on you. I mean, is that something where you typed that last word and it was just tears? Like, and again, I'm sure even when you typed the last word, there was 25 different edits, but I don't know. I don't know. Is it possible to kind of sum up the emotional impact the book had on you? Um, gosh, I don't know that I can sum that up, Um, but it's an interesting question. I think it's, and with impeccable timing and ambulances driving by. Right. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, it was certainly like the material is very challenging material. Um, and the form of the book is itself set up to both challenge you, but also invite you in. Mm. And it was pretty taxing. And so I did take breaks and, um, you know, think purposely think about other things. I did things like, yeah teach a teach various humor classes I was like this is you know there was a period of time where I tried to make it funnier and then I was like this is not this does not take it's not taking and so I'm gonna have to put the humor somewhere else so um I think it was it was super tiring um and then also I really really love the characters so um 
I think they were like, they were a set of people that kind of, um, you know, if you were going to look at that material, they were the people you were going to want to look at it with. Right, 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 right. You know, you know, recently, um, you know, Oprah's had as one of her books, the, the Abraham, Abraham Vergesi, you know, who's an incredible writer. I haven't read the latest one, but, you know, six part podcast and all that. I know it's a really, really long book. And again, I, don't, I haven't read it, but, you know, all kinds of characters in history, like, like that's that's your book, like your book, like the characters are so I keep saying the word memorable. Sorry, I'm going to say it you know, a million times more. The characters are so memorable. There's so much to unpack about the book. Um, obviously, I mean, just on a craft level, it's uh, impeccably done. The emotional impact, which for me hits first, is almost indescribable. So, it, yeah, it really is just like a saga. Sashi is is Sashi Kala the fir- the whole name? Yeah, you're saying it right. Is is Kala like a diminutive is not the word, but is it like a can't think of the word like in Japanese like San? No, it's like no, um, it's more like. My full first name is Vasugi and Sugi is a nickname. So Sashi is just a common nickname for that. Yeah. The prologue starts in 2009, you know, from New York. And just a really interesting part about, you know, terrorists. Um, The word terrorist obviously calls people's attention. And it's, you know, you you have lines that are like, again, like I can't sum it up. You, to say like, oh, you know, you humanize people. That's like simplifying and it's not giving you your your full glory it's more than humanizing them but something as simple as you know when i sashi when i when we would see see these people i knew these people before when someone would encounter each other they simply said hello <laughs> you know they're you know this idea of they're just normal people with the people we grew up with um without cheapening in any way right so there's so many there's so it's a retrospective in so many ways which you know just setting that up at the beginning that we know it's looking back you know, changes the emotional register even. Um, the first scene, um, Sashi, what, she scalds herself with some hot water, basically, mm-hmm. right? And we have Kay, and I'll ask you about the name in a minute. Calm as heck. He's a boy about her age. Says, hey, do this thing with the eggs. We're going to take away the, the pain. We'll take away the heat from it. And it's a great line that means so much more as the book goes on. Quote, I began as Kay's patient, though he ended as mine. I don't know how much you want to say about Kay's name, because you know later in the book is this like a like check off thing where you know k could be any of us like you know leaving a name blank almost is it it doesn't matter his name is it a secrecy thing um i think a lot of that um so yeah in the first in the first scene um there's that prologue that you mentioned and and sashi is from the vantage point of 2009 recalling her um her teenage years and then the book starts in 1981 and and she's making tea and she spills this water on herself and he hears her scream and runs in and starts cracking eggs where she has burned herself and through this kind of um unconventional treatment like succeeds in making it look like essentially like it's not like it's never happened but it's also this undoable incident um so Kay, i guess like Kay is part of that original piece of historical research mm-hmm. that um, that I started writing about, which was a hunger strike that took place in Sri Lanka in late 1987. And Kay is only referred to by an initial in the book. And there were various drafts where he had a full name mm-hmm. and then I took it out then I put it back in, then I do do anyway. Like it was mm-hmm. kind of just every time he had a full name, it became less possible to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so more than I can say, like, 
that I had any grand conscious plan of the symbolism of mm -hmm. it being an initial, it simply made it possible for me to continue to write about him, that it was yeah. an initial. Yeah. And I think it, you know, what was my subconscious doing there? I think probably like there's a lot of Commonwealth literature where it's like, you know, it's like an epistolary book and it's like, mm. dear Ms. T, uh, I saw N today. And yeah, as we stroll yeah. down the moor, yes. he seemed just as much of a jerk as he was before. Or like, yeah. I don't know, what have you, you know, like all Great of this kind of <laughs> don't tune in for that, folks. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think like there's a way in which it's a kind of nod to a certain English language writing tradition, um, maybe even specifically an English tradition, and then maybe a tradition actually specifically of the epistolary where there is often direct address. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also a nod to like codes of anonymity, like ways that people have been anonymized. Mm. Um, could he be anyone? Actually, you might start out thinking no and maybe the answer veers more towards yes than you might have expected but also i mean he ends up being a pretty specific he's pretty specific yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah, yeah. but then it's also about kind of i was also i think trying to get it and people still do this right like i did write a book that has a lot of connections to actual history and if you've lived through this period I mean, there's what you can find on Wikipedia, but if you live through this period, there are a thousand Easter eggs built into this book for you. Okay. Um, and that's pretty intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, right, like making him be just an initial is a way of kind of striking back against the idea that the importance of the book is lodged in its likeness to real life. Mm. Um, like I don't actually. I, I hope that people don't spend a ton of time sitting around thinking was K real yeah, because it's not actually, that's not, that's not his importance to the story okay. particularly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, it's safe to say that her, that Sashi's, you know, it's not like a torrid, like love for him. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of respect and, you know, she sees him as intense and serious and maybe most importantly capable, you know, like the capable hands, like with the, like the surgery that, you know, the quote unquote surgery he did. But I mean, I don't know. Is she in love? Is it, is it like a potential to be, or do you want to leave that um, alone for, for plot? No. <laughs> well, I mean, there's like, there's kind of, there's spoilery answers there, yeah. but um, okay. you know, I think that also to, I, to answer that in a way that doesn't spoil things. I think Kay is like a physical presence. He's a, he's a real presence in her life. He's someone who kind of, I don't know, in the way that like when I was a kid, if I had a crush on someone, every time they showed up, my entire body would be at attention, you know, but also my brain. Right. Um, and my brain sort of asking me the question of like, why does that person compel me so much? Sometimes there was no reason. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, also, yeah. I don't know, like the, I was always compelled by people who were smart in ways and still am compelled by people who are smart in ways that I'm not smart. Um, and also confused by, um, like different ethical choices than the ones I would make, um, including from people that I care about. Yeah. And so I think he's a reminder for her of like also all of the ways that life without a war might have been different. Like a, a life essentially, I mean, I mean, I think about this now with um, you know, I don't actually think we're post, we're certainly we're not post-COVID. Um, and I think about like oh. people's entire lives have been altered. Like people, you know, I spent the first 40 years of my life thinking that the end of my life might go a certain way. And like, I was sort of promised something by who I don't know, but like I, and now it's different mm -hmm. and it's going to be different. And so like something was stolen 
And who's responsible for that? And what does it look like to have the shadow of that follow you around? You, I wish, I wish you weren't, you weren't so right on, but you are right on. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, who would have even thought, you know, truth is strange in the fiction, you know? How, how has this happened? You've seen some incredible collective, you know, community type organizations, and you've seen people show their true colors and they're just about themselves. And if it's about helping someone else, eh, maybe, you know, it doesn't put me out, right? <laughs> but Sorry, I didn't mean to go so no, dark no, there. No, no, but... no, no. Four brothers. So, so Naranjan. Naranjan. Naranjan, excuse me. Dialan. 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 Silan. Silan and Aran. Right. I think in, that's that's in the order of their ages. And then, you know, mother and father, we'll talk about them later. You know, the father, you know, is a kind of a roving salesman of sort, not a salesman, but he he travels a lot for business. And the the town city, I don't know how big it is, is Jaffna, right? It's mm-hmm. um this is on the this is on the north or northeast. I know the northeast is a big um was a, was big, uh had a big Tamil population as far as opposed to how do you say the other word? Sinhala? Singala? Singala. Jaffna, right, being like the being a big population center for the Tamil people, as opposed to you said Singhalese, Singhalese, who are you know the, who are the majority on the island. Some of the early scenes are are really beautiful and innocent. You know, Kay and sometimes the brothers and Sashi. You know, they go to the library. They're they're kids. You know, they're they're all studying for these important examinations of different sorts, mostly medical, um, medical schools and 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 those kind of things to get in. Um, but you know, they're, they're kids being kids and the, the library is such a huge, you know, place for them early on in the story. There's a scene where there's a political rally and, you know, the family's like, do we go? Like we want our kids to know what's going on, but at the same time, like, is it safe? There's a shooting, um, uh, by, you know, obviously the term militant is even loaded, but it's in the book, it's described as a militant and the kind of back and forth begins boys on bikes are seen as, you know, suspect it's like, you know, be careful. Um, I just wonder about the, about the importance of that city, Jaffna, about, um, the way that the family grows up and kind of where their political lives began, I guess, you know, was it something where you felt like they were really kind of apathetic or whatever, and then just kind of were forced into it kind of how that, how they became involved? Like, did they have no choice? Sure. Um, so as you said, Jaffna is, you know, it's, it's a large city in the northern province, um, and it's historically um, like a, ma- a majority Tamil city. Although mm-hmm. um, certainly, including during parts of the war, you know, it had um, both Sinhalese and Muslim residents. And mm-hmm. the importance of Jaffna to the book, I did specifically want to write a book connected to Jaffna. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of very fine Sri Lankan and Sri Lankan diaspora literature about the war. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of it is set in or around Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka, which is um, a place that experienced the war in very particular ways, but it was experienced very differently in Jaffna. And I grew up with both sets of stories because I have relatives from both places. Mm. Um, by and large, my family is connected to Jaffna. Um, but I, yeah, but I do also have close relatives who were in Colombo through this period of time or who grew up in Colombo. Um, but it was sort of my feeling that I wanted to write a book that was set in Jaffna and that felt like a Jaffna book. I guess that they, how political is the family? I mean, 
during this period of time, the political rally that's depicted in the book, like like a lot of other things that happened in the book, did actually happen. There was actually a shooting mm-hmm. um, at that particular rally, and it's um, like many like many families, they have sort of varying degrees of involvement in politics. There's, you know, one brother Aaron who kind of is always like reading the newspaper and is like, mm-hmm. like young and wants to talk about the politics of stuff a lot. And then there's his dad who kind of has. Um, a little bit more jaded view, but also is very pragmatic. Um, mm-hmm. There's his oldest brother who is kind of deeply ethical about it and is like, well, you know, we're citizens, we have to participate. And then there's there's kind of Sashi's next oldest brother, Selin, who's a bit hot-tempered. He's the same age as Kay. Her second brother, Dylan, who works at the library. So they, I don't know, they're sort of, they're like a middle-class family and they're, yeah. so they're sort of by personality, emotionally involved in politics or not. The father figure has been impacted by violence and politics and he but yeah i think even at the beginning of the book he's someone who he hasn't been forced particularly to make i don't know life or death or hard choices about what his life will be like how politics impacts it like what his what will his political choices mean to his life Mm -hmm. the stakes of those questions haven't been that high yet um and then suddenly they are because he's at this rally with his sons and he feels that they are in real peril. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him, it's like a little bit of a foreshadowing or kind of a wake up call of how things can turn violent very quickly. Yeah, that's for sure. there's always a shadow or always a shadow, you know, and it's not mentioned, you know, explicitly very many times, like how much, how much is, you know, is colonialism, imperialism, like a, a huge part of this book? Like how much is, you know, is that what settled so many of these things into motion? How much is that something that's still recovering from, or still feels the aftershocks of like, is it kind of like a shadowy figure, like almost like another character? I like, to think that I I would not have phrased it that way, but I really like that phrasing. Um, oh. I may borrow it and use it from now on, Pete. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it would be easy to lay all of the sins of the war, uh, the sins of the war at the door of colonialism, and I don't think we can quite do that um, because then that sort of I don't know it makes it seem like all the communities and stakeholders involved didn't have that much agency. Actually, they did. Mm. They had choices, right? Like there are a few moments in the book where. Um, Sashi sort of says, and we could have done something different, and we didn't. Um, so she's also trying to take an accounting and see like what she herself is responsible for and what she, mm-hmm. what her community is responsible for, and that's also mm-hmm. part of what the book is about. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, there's also certainly I take my take, I take some digs at um colonialism. Like there's um there's a moment where what they're in some sort of um. Oh, I know exactly where it is. It's like they're in a, some characters are in a refugee camp and a British aid worker kind of comes up to them mm. and says, says something in plummy tones about, you know, how he pities them. And this is like a, like it's in, intentionally sort of like, like a slightly scathing de- depiction or, you know, mm. someone sort of says, oh, the, you know, the, the aid worker is over, the British aid worker is available to, to help. But sort of the implication is that he won't be very helpful uh, so there are these moments where they're kind of international players, some of whom are British, mm-hmm. and they're not awesome. No. Um, the UN so, guy, right? Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. there's a variety of characters 
um, from different backgrounds, some British, some Indian, Mm. um, right? There's Indian imperialism in this book as well. And Mm. that was another thing I kind of wanted to get in the book. Like, I think British imperialism, there's a lot of literature of the Foreman Commonwealth that indicts colonialism, very happy to join that tradition. (laughs) And also I grew up with stories of Indian peacekeeping forces, violence in Jaffna, Mm. and I had not seen those on a page Mm. in a book of fiction, which may attest more to the limits of my own reading than to what Mm. is actually available. Mm. Um, But still, I was pretty determined to put them in the book too. Mm. Appreciate that. So, you know, we talked about the library that was so, um, such a a community gathering place. And, you know, with the, with the back and forth, um, it became, you know, well, everyone, you know, on the Thomas side, they're terrorists. So therefore we need to go in a lot of echoes of Palestine and, and Israel and kind of thing like that. And probably a lot of places around the world. But the library is burned down as one of the, in retaliation, supposedly. Sashi is studying for the big exams. There's this teacher named so royally or so beautifully, Sir, and he's, he's so helpful to them. So again, you talked about like, what decisions do we make? Sashi kind of stops. And with Naranjan, the older, oldest brother, they decide to go to Colombo, the big city. Their grandmother lives there. They can study in, in those ways. When they're when they when the violence comes to their house comes to their neighborhood now what you have so many of those not so many but enough these like little interludes or 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 you know kind of asides or like breaking the fourth wall right what would you do in this case it's almost like a second person how I wouldn't describe the book is definitely not second person but like what what were you hoping to accomplish with the breaking in and really kind of like pause, time out, like, let's put it back on you, reader. I think the direct address in the book, which is, I guess, how I think of it instead of second person in particular, mm-hmm. um, the direct address to the reader. I think, you know, when Love Marriage came out, for example, I was often put in the position of, I was touring with that book during the year that the Sri Lankan Civil War ended. And I was often, things happened to me, like they would put me on the radio and sort of say, we're going to expect you to gloss the war in 30 seconds. And I didn't grow up in Sri Lanka. No one, including people who, to, who grew up in Sri Lanka, should have to gloss the war in 30 seconds. And also as a practical matter, I did it. Um, <laughs> and I found being called on for that kind of explanation horrendous. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I fully expect that I will have to do it again. <laughs> um, so I think um, I had some frustration with explanation and the notion of it as explanation, the notion of any non-Anglo BIPOC narrative as a form of explanation. Mm. Um, And then also like the very pragmatic question of like, well, how do I tell my story to an audience that doesn't have the basics that I have? Well, I can do two things. I can explain a lot and I can like very obviously expect more and sort of say in the narrative that I'm expecting more and sort of say like, are you paying attention? Are you kind of you dicking around? Like, are you skimming? Are you skimming through this book um, and looking for kind of an easy path? Um, And what does that mean about you? So, I mean, I say this with like, like so many people have read this book so generously and with such love. And I'm Mm. hugely appreciative of that. And I think also there was a version of me when I was writing it that was really angry about a variety of things. And that was one of them. Like, why should I have to explain, actually? Mm -hmm. But I'm going to. But since yeah. I have to do it, I'm going to do it really mad. Um, <laughs> so it was a little bit of like having my cake and eating it too, I suppose, yeah. like as a like a narrative structure that gave me the ability to do that, to like give the explanation and then also say, please think about why you need this. 
Um, And then it's also a form of like self-interrogation, right? I can think about expecting more of the reader. I can also think about expecting more of myself. So there are moments where Sashi assumes who the reader is and sort of assumes, well, you couldn't possibly know this. Mm -hmm. Then there are other moments where that doubles back on itself. And she says, I should stop actually assuming that I know what Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, you know, more than I think. And so that was also kind of me calling myself out for maybe not expecting enough, like not crediting, like I should be crediting my readers with being really smart. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they are. I think that people who read literary fiction by and large are people who are coming to those books for immersive worlds and immersive histories and Mm -hmm. are able to infer and and also, you know, people are reading with the benefit of the internet. If you want to go and look yeah. something up, you you can, mm-hmm. or you can make the decision that you're going to like, you're going to infer based on context and you can go on. Mm-hmm. So to credit people with understanding the tools that they have to accompany their reading and also to kind of call myself out on my own assumptions, which can certainly be inaccurate, right? Because a lot of Sri Lankans mm-hmm. were going to read the book mm-hmm. and I also remembered every instance in which I was at some sort of Asian American art performance or some sort of reading some sort of Asian American thing that assumed that I wasn't there, um, that addressed itself to someone else. And I mean, often when people are asking, you know, what audience are you writing for? They want to know if they're in it. Mm. I'm sorry, the part you're saying about assuming you weren't there, that's you're saying that's what you were reading or that you felt that way based on? I guess guess I'm thinking of um, other times, times when I have read work by not and I shouldn't just say Asian American, actually times when I've read work by other writers or when I've been at performances or when I've been in a space with visual art or dance or something Mm -hmm. and it has addressed itself to an audience that specifically like excludes the notion that I could be sitting there okay Okay. like um yeah like like say you go to a piece you know you go to see a performance and it's by Um, someone from a particular identity group and you're from the same identity group and you're sitting in the audience, but the work is addressing itself exclusively to say people who are white Americans. Mm. And that that's the presumption under which it's operating. It's, it's operating as though you're not sitting there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't want to do that either because the book is also very specifically like it is actually for Sri Lankans. Like if, if you are, Sri Lankan, you will get things out of it that other people won't because all of the readers are different. They're bringing different things to it. And if you're Tamil, you'll get different things out of it. And if you're from Jaffna, you'll get different things out Mm. of it. So kind of acknowledging the variety of readers also. Mm. Getting to a point where I want to, you know, start tiptoeing or stopping the plot spoilers because this this book needs to be read. There's so much going on. But one thing, obviously, one of the very climactic events, pivotal events is is that Naranjan does disappear. And, you know, it's I think that's where Brotherless Night starts. You know, there's it's one of those nights where, you know, where is he? What's going on? This idea that um, so many people in the Civil War and, and had to you know have a burial without a body. And you can just imagine the pain of not knowing what happened to your son, your daughter, your father, right? There are these younger, the younger brothers, and they're like, they're pissed off. They're pissed off at the world, and rightfully so. Sashi's pissed off. Sashi's saying, what could I have done? Could I have done anything differently? You know, grandma, um, do should we, should we blame? Do you blame the father? The father was MIA, kind of literally 
And once the Naranjan passed, he he's in a great pain, of course, but he's not really around much. And he's kind of a, not kind of a, an impotent figure. Do we, I don't know, do you judge him? Or are you saying like, hey, here's the character and, and treat him as you will? Do I judge him? That's interesting. I think his actual, the notion of being someone who works outstation, um, which is the term of sort of being someone who, yeah, travels to other places for comes home on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty common. Okay. And that's what he does. That's realistic. And it does also disconnect him from his family. And so I think that there are a lot of ways in which the care and emotional life of the family is built around the mother. And that's also something that I think maybe he doesn't, in, he only sometimes seems to mind. Hmm. Um. So he sort of sometimes, sometimes he comes back and kind of like has a lot of opinions. And sometimes he's, when he doesn't know, when he's not sure what is to be done, that's very convenient for him. Um, and so it is his yes. wife who is called to rise to the occasion to protect her children or care for them under unprecedented circumstances. Yeah. I guess I judge him a little bit. <laughs> it certainly sounds like I judge him a little bit. Um, and also there are moments of enormous tenderness when I like him a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think he he also is always rewinding in his head to think about what could he have done differently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We talked about the the direct address. So much profundity. There's one line is, I want you to understand it does not matter if you cannot imagine the future. Still relentless, it comes. And it does come. And they, you know, life goes on, but it also doesn't. And they're all affected in their own ways. And not to justify, you know, violence or things like that. But how do you not be empathetic or sympathetic to those who lost their their brother, their daughter, their son? How would you not be, you know, pissed off at the world, pissed off at those who did it? I thought it was really interesting where Sashi passes that big test for 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 medicine after he after he died. And before she was kind of iffy with her hands. And she just talks about like kind of like, what is there to fear now? Like I can pass this test, it's no big deal. So sad and depressing and and sweet at the same time. It's usually that'll be like, oh, awesome. You know, you you let go of your fears, but it's kind of like. Yeah, I let go of my fears. Like nothing worse can happen. I've already lost my brother and that kind of thing, right? So with that, tracing the history of, of Sri Lanka, different offshoot groups. We, of course, everyone knows, most people know about the Tamil Tigers. There's also the offshoot, offset groups. And, you know, some decide to join, some decide not, all for these different reasons. And again, without justifying the violence, but you, you don't make it a binary. You don't make it this group terrible, this group great, this group saints, this group, you know, whatever the opposite is. I wonder how you, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm not going to pick sides or whatever, or how did you not oversimplify the situation? How did you leave room for so many stories for Anjali, who deserves a book of her own and deserves a whole podcast episode of her own, the great, the beautiful teacher and kind of older sister, like for Sashi, her history and what she continues to do and her and all the good stuff. How did you make it such a, a multifaceted story without really flattening and simplifying? Thank you for saying all of that. I think I'm sure that there must be people out there who think that I did. Um, I haven't heard from them yet. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that there are people also with political differences. Mm. Um, I think that my book, my book actually has fairly clear politics in that it it's multifaceted. It also, I mean, it, it has in it some stories that are 
very clearly, very clearly indict the tigers, yeah, yeah. the state, the international community, all the above. Um, Thummel civil society for some of how it some of how it handled things. Um, mm. you know, um, and a variety of other other actors that I'm not even naming. So, mm. like for example, like there, you know, the tigers were both the tigers in the state in my childhood were like genius purveyors of propaganda. Mm. They told stories that left out their atrocities and glorified yeah. their what they did, the actions, the actions that were more obviously defensible or nationalist. And so a lot of what I've done is simply to include things based on fact, um, sometimes accounts very close to what happened that were like elided from those elided or obscured or mm. omitted from those propaganda versions. Um, and again, I think there, you know, like I don't like being lied to. And again, I was mad. Mm. So, mm. Um, you know, this was my way to put all of that in. Um, so for example, you know, you referred to, I do, I do refer to the Tigers as militants. Um, and there were other Thummel militant groups as well. Many, you know, which had their own political histories, their own crimes, et cetera. And there are details in the book about these groups fighting each other. Those are also based on facts. So I think like what I did was to try to include a balanced set of those stories. Like I couldn't include right. all of them, right. but I could curate to reflect my willingness to be critical of different actors. Mm -hmm. um, and I did also have, I'm thinking of one friend in particular who was reading along as I was writing each chapter and I would hand it to her. And then she would tell me what I was getting wrong, like historical facts or what have you, or you could put this in you should think about it. You know, this part seems heavy handed, take it out. And I trust, I trust her politics. And a lot of the people I talked to who were critical of, for example, people like the Tigers or the state were also on the basis of like individual stories, very willing to give others space and room and credit and to account for their complex histories. You know, they would say like, oh, X person had been in the Tigers and then I don't know. Then they left, they moved overseas, they came back. Like, I don't know. Like the, all of these stories were so, they were not necessarily tidy. And so yeah. it was um, very possible to put in those untidy stories, um, which yeah. the propaganda couldn't contain. I don't know if, I don't know if pressure is a word, but I feel like it's, it's a pressure or probably like, I don't know, something that probably pushed you on to make it so great, but just this idea of like, you know, even by you talking about like, your, your friend, your editor was like, oh, you, you know, you could put this part in. Like, I got to think that even by not including some things, you're making like a choice. For right? sure. You know, for sure. it goes back to your, your journalist, you know, background, even right. Or like a historian's idea. Of, it's kind of like, if you say I'm not being political, you're actually making a political decision by, by being apolitical, you know, we'll wait for the six part Oprah Winfrey series. There's so much more that, you know, there, sh there should be a whole nother episode with just spoilers because, but I, you know, we want to leave it alone. We want people to read it. Priya's story. Oh. Man, Priya's story and that hunger strike that you referenced that was kind of the, the basis deserving of episodes of their own, the family dynamics, some of those awkward, to say the least, dinners and meals together at home and the tenderness. I, I, one last thing I would say is, you know, you were talking about how maybe you felt like that was some of your anger coming out with like the direct address. And I see that and I can understand what you're talking about. But like I've, I've seen a lot of reviewers say about the book, like I, I felt like those were so tender. You know, those are so tender to say, um, 
I had one of those other lines written down. How can we act as though that did not happen? What would you have done in his shoes? And just like giving grace to people and just a tenderness, like, you know, that doesn't mean it's some Mickey Mouse happy ending, like definitely not. But there's just such a sense of tenderness that you're able to to play along with, um, you know, with what are some, with some really, some really dark days at times. So congratulations on the book. I think it was Britt Bennett said, blurred, like it's an unputdownable book, something to that effect. And that that is right on. Again, I want to encourage everybody who's listening, get Brotherless Night, read it. You will not ever, ever, ever regret it. Where should we buy it? Um, thank you so much, Pete, for having me. Um, where should you buy it? Um, my local indie is Majors and Quinn. And if you want me to sign a copy for you, you can ah. order from them and put a note in that says that. And I'll go into the store and happily do it. Cool. But yeah, any great independent bookstore near you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Do you, um, I'm not sure the, like the anniversary, I'm not sure how, how long it's been out in the world. It came out on January 3rd. So the year anniversary is coming up pretty soon. There's the cool cover if you're watching. There's the British cover, the UK cover. Uh, I guess you'd be on your right, on her, her left shoulder there. You, uh, again, have written just a, a saga. The the way that you see the the, the family evolution or de-evolution de- de- or whatever you want to say, just their changes over the years as well as the country. It could only be done in that that way with the retrospective and the flashback. So you could sit on this one for the rest of your life. I wrote Brotherless Night, done, drop the mic. But I wonder if you want to share any uh, future projects, maybe. Um, that's a great question. Um, I have certainly, um, I did spend a really long time on this book and the it was, uh, I'll leave it to others to decide how, I appreciate all of the, the generosity with which you've read this. And I do think, yeah, like I said, I love the characters a lot. And so to look at that dark material with them, alongside me made it Mm. um made it not only bearable but at times really enjoyable Mm. and so yes it was also written with a lot of love I think that like yeah I worked on it for a long time and after I was done I was a little bit of a scorch mark Mm. um and so I was on sabbatical for a year and during that sabbatical I, I noodled around with various things but haven't settled on anything in particular yet I also just like did a lot of sleeping um there you go which continues to sound continues to sound so appealing um but yeah I, I think I needed a I think I needed a break um I have like a f- strange idea for a comic novel um I did oh. teach humor while I was um working on this book and in this book I think there is some humor in it um but it's of a certain kind and I think if I were to try on a specific comic form that would be an interesting challenge for me Hmm. um i'm also working on some essays and some short stories so we'll see which one of those three i kind of settle into we talking like mad magazine humor like onion satire like just like haha funny like laugh out loud um i think if i were to liken it to something you know like the two old men who sit in the muppets gallery and yeah. laugh at everyone yes yes it would be like them okay they weren't they weren't necessarily mean were they were they like mean-spirited or were they kind of more like i kind, I, I definitely remember them it's been a minute i um are they mean-spirited sometimes they're mean-spirited yeah. but sometimes they're just i don't know making silly puns i think yeah. you no know, comic comic work that i recently have admired julie schumacher is one of my colleagues i think her dear committee members trilogy is absolutely brilliant the third mm-hmm. one is out now um 
And, you know, my friend Curtis Sittenfeld wrote romantic comedy, which is realistic and also like just really, really funny mm-hmm. and also also very tender in its storytelling. And I love that book a lot. And so I think if I were to try to write something funny, I would try to, I don't know, I would be, I think it would be a great stretch to try to to yeah. imitate um, kind of the sharpness of Julie's comic timing um, you know, her light, her light, but fearless hand with puns, yeah. et cetera. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, well, good luck with that. I've already recommended the book to two people, uh, many more to come. Obviously people listening, this is a major, major recommendation. I was telling you before we started recording, you, know, you take a book in viscerally or a movie in and like right after the end of you're like, Oh my God, it's the best movie I've ever seen in my life. I've had a, I've had a few that are a little kind of embarrassing that I wouldn't even admit right now that like after I saw them and then the more I thought of it, I was like, Ugh. this book, when I, when I finished it, it was like, oh my God, this is one of the most memorable, one of the best books I've ever read. And then, yep, a day later, two days later, it's like, yes, that that is a book for the ages. So congrats. Um, it's awesome to talk to you. It's kind of late on your side of the, the country. So I appreciate you being so clear headed and intelligent and, and thoughtful, even at kind of a later hour. Thanks again. And good luck with your continued work. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. I really appreciate all of your thoughtful questions and I really admire your show and it's a treat to be on with you. What a pleasure it's been to speak today with VV. Thank you so much to her. Continue good luck with her writing. And I'm so looking forward to continue to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Wool podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. This is the Chills of Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. And thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of World podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 204 with Kara H.L. Chen. Kara has undergraduate degrees in English and Economics, a JD, and an MFA in Fiction. Love and Resistance, published in July 2023, is her YA debut. And this episode will air on September 19th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like V. V. Ganesh Anathan, whose work, like Brotherless Night, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 